This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Hawke's Bay, a community access media station. Thank you to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. Hello, how are you? Come on in, sit down. This is Dexter and this is Kidnappers Kids. On Radio Hawks B. Let's have a song. Yes, that's a good idea. Thank you very much. It's ABBA with Waterloo. Sorry about that. Yes. Ah, how about a story now? Yeah, I thought I think that's a good idea. Do you like that idea? I hope you do. So this time it's the snow goose. Sit back and enjoy. They tell of the snow goose, all that know of her. But what they tell is only a little of the story. I know the truth because I saw that mighty bird 
saw calm and unafraid straight toward the leaden death and blanketing smoke of Dunkirk. But that was before the sea had claimed its own, and the great white bird that saw it all from the beginning to the end had returned to the silences of the Northland whence it came. It is not a story that falls easily and smoothly into sequence, and some of it comes in the form of fragments from men who looked upon strange and violent scenes. Here's your drinks. It was a goose, a blooming goose, so help me. God, I don't believe it. A goose it was. Jockey, I see it same as me. Men of all kinds and from every station. Did you run across that queer sort of legend about a wild goose? It was all up and down the beaches. You know how those things spring up? A wild goose? No, but I saw a tame one. A strange experience. Under the circumstances, a dash queer thing to see. Odd that you should mention a goose. I suppose some people might say it was a legend. Legend? No, gentlemen, it wasn't a legend. It wasn't really just a goose, either. Have you ever seen a snow goose? Have you ever looked up into the deepest blue of the heavens with your eyes straining to penetrate distance itself. Have you ever seen suddenly a black speck coming toward you? A speck that in the space of seconds is transformed into a black and white pinioned dream? A rush of white wings, black-tipped, a thrust-forward head, a strong, graceful body like a great white sail in full flight. I have seen that, gentlemen. I have known a snow goose... Well. My name is Philip Ryder. I am not accustomed to speaking my mind, as I'm afraid that I have lived away from the world too long to be articulate. But I cannot have it said that the snow goose is a legend. So if you will bear with me, here is the story. By my own choice, I left the world of human society in the late spring of 1930. There were reasons for this choice of mine, among them the strange, misshapen body which God had given me, for I must have been a frightening apparition indeed. I bought an old abandoned lighthouse at the mouth of the Elder and the acres of marshland and salting which surrounded it. I wanted only to be left to my painting and to have as little contact with the world as possible. I was drawn to my lighthouse, not only because of its isolation, but because of the hundreds of species of birds which migrated there every spring. One November afternoon, three years after I had come to the Great Marsh, I stood in my enclosure, feeding the birds... looked along the seawall and saw a child, a little girl. She was no more than twelve, slender and nervous, timid as a bird, beautiful as a marsh fairy, 
She was pure Saxon, fair, deep-set, violet-colored eyes, and desperately afraid. What is it, child? I... I thought... I was... Come, child, don't be frightened. I won't hurt you. Come closer. What have you there? I found it, sir. It's a bird. It's hurt it. Is it still alive? Yes, yes, I think so. Come in, child, come in. Let's see what's the matter with it. Just hold it here for me on this table. Please don't be frightened. I found it in the marsh, sir, where fowlers have been. What... Whatever kind of bird is it, sir? It's a snow goose from Canada. But how in heaven came it here? You can heal it, sir, can't you? Yes, I hope so. Anyway, we will try. Don't be afraid. I'm not afraid. But I have never seen a bird like her before. No, nor have I in any parts of the country close to here. She came to us from a very great distance. Wherever did she come from, sir? Well, I'll tell you all I know of her. She was born in a northern land far across the seas. Oh. Every winter she flew to the south to escape the snow and ice and bitter cold. This year, a great storm must have seized her and whirled and buffeted her about. You can see how strong her wings are. Yes. But the storm was stronger. For days and nights it held her in its grip, and there was nothing she could do but fly before it. Mm. When finally it had blown itself out, she dropped to rest in a friendly green marsh, only to be met by the blast from the hunter's gun. Oh. Yes. A bitter reception for a visiting princess. But it's not as bad as it might have been. In a few days, she'll be feeling much better. You and I will call her the princess. The last princess. Do you like that? Oh, yes. Now watch. See, see if she won't eat something. Here is some grain. Put it in the palm of your hand and hold it out to her. Hmm. Oh, oh, look. She's eating it. Her eyes are open. Oh, she's going to be all right. She feels much better. I'm going. I'm going. Goodbye. Wait, wait. Yes, sir? What is your name, child? Frith. Where do you live? With the fisher folk at Wickledress. Will you come back tomorrow or the next day to see how the princess is getting along? Yes, sir. Yes, I will. Goodbye, sir. As she spoke... I thought of the wild water birds caught motionless in that split second of alarm before they take flight. Her instinctive fear of that strange, misshapen figure, which is myself, had been overcome by her deep concern for the injured bird. But when all looked well again, the child was caught once more by the sudden and full import of where she was, and in panic had fled from my side. princess wasn't badly hurt, and by midwinter was limping about the enclosure with the wild, pink-footed geese. Frith came often to see her, and as her devotion to the bird grew, her fear of me disappeared completely. One June morning, a group of late pinkfeet answered the siren song of the breeding grounds and rose lazily into the sky in ever-widening circles. With them, 
her white body and black-tipped pinions shining in the spring sun, was the snow goose. Look, the princess. Is she going away? Yes, the princess is going home. Look, Frith. She is bidding us farewell. Well, I think I'd best be going home, too. Goodbye, sir. No need for you to hurry, child. Sit and talk a bit. No, sir. Thank you very much. I think I'd best be going home. Goodbye, Frith. I learned all over again the meaning of the word loneliness. That summer, from memory, I painted a picture of a slender child, her fair hair blown by a November storm, who bore in her arms a wounded white bird. In mid-October, a miracle occurred. I was in my enclosure feeding the birds. A grey northeast wind was blowing and the land was sighing beneath the incoming tide. Above the wind and sea, I heard a clear high note. I turned my eyes upward to the evening sky, barely in time to see a dream of black and white beauty come to earth in the pen and come waddling forward importantly as though she had never been away. There was no mistaking her. It was the snow goose. I did not even wait to think where she might have been, but rushed to sail my little boat as fast as wind and wave would take me into Chelmbury and left a message with the postmistress. Good evening, Mr. Ryder. It's months since I've seen you. Yes, I have been away for some time. Would you mind delivering a message for me? Of course, I'll be glad to. Tell Frith, who lives with the fisher folk at Wickledroth, that the lost princess has returned. Tell who? What? You know the little girl, Frith. Of course. Just tell her that the lost princess has returned. She'll understand. Oh. That winter started the parade of years, the happiest I have ever known. Time was marked by the height of the tides, the passage of the birds, and for Frith and me by the arrival and departure of the snow goose. The world was now boiling and seething and rumbling with the eruption that was soon to break forth. But it had not yet touched upon either Frith or myself. I taught her the law of every wild bird that flew the marshes. She cooked for me sometimes and even learned to mix my paints. But every time the snow goose left us to return to its summer home, the barrier was again thrown up between us, and Frith would no longer come to the lighthouse. One year the bird did not return at all, and life seemed to have ended for me. But the following autumn, the familiar cry rang once more from above, and the huge white bird came out of the skies as mysteriously as it had departed. more than a month, however, before Frith reappeared at the lighthouse. When I saw her, I realized with a shock that she was a child no longer. She had grown tall, slender, and hauntingly beautiful. As I looked at her, I felt the deep surge of my longing, my loneliness, and all the unspoken things that lay between us. We stood together in that spring of 1940. The world was on fire. The whine and roar of the bombers and the thudding explosions had frightened the birds. The first day of May, 
We watched the last of them rise from their sanctuary. Look, Philip. The princess is going with them. The call is strong, Frith. Almost impossible to resist. But somehow she doesn't seem as sure as usual. See how she's circling close to us. I wish she'd stay. You wouldn't be so alone if she were always here. The call is strong, Frith. For both you and the princess. When she flies away, I lose both of you. I mustn't stay. I have to go. Look up, Frith. The princess. Oh, Philip, she's not going. She's circling nearer and nearer. She's coming back. The princess is going to come back. Yes, she is coming back. And this time to stay, always. The lost princess is lost no more. This is her home now. Of her own free will. Of her own free will. Of her own free will. Yes, my dearest. Don't go, Frith. We need you, the princess and I. Oh, Philip, no. No, I cannot. I must go. I'm glad the princess is going to stay. You will not be so alone now. Goodbye. Goodbye, Philip. Goodbye, Frith. At first I had been afraid of Philip Ryder because I had heard such strange tales before I ever saw him. I will never forget the day that I walked along the seawall with the wounded snow goose in my arms and stopped frightened at sight of the dark figure that appeared at the door. I saw a man, a hunchback with his left arm crippled and thin and bent at the wrist like the claw of a bird. But when he spoke, his voice was deep and gentle. And my fears vanished when I found that he loved very greatly man and all nature. He did not know how to hate. His heart was filled with understanding. He had been driven into seclusion by his failure to find anywhere a return of the warmth that flowed from him. It was some months later when Philip and I sailed back to the lighthouse after getting supplies in town. It was amazing to watch him handle his fast 16-foot sailing boat with his strong right hand on the tiller and in a brisk wind the rope clenched between his teeth. As we disembarked, I noticed that Philip was strangely quiet. What is it, Philip? It's nothing, child. It's the war, isn't it? It's that you feel you cannot do anything. That you cannot serve with your fellow men fighting for a land that you love very deeply. Isn't that it? There are some things Providence never intended me to do. That Providence which is handicapped will show you what to do. If it doesn't, there is no God. I'll never say that, Frith. If there were no God... There would not be anywhere the beauty that is all around us now. I was very young, but an age-old instinct told me that here was a man whose heart was breaking because he could not serve in an angry world. I left him sadly, and it was more than three weeks later before I returned to give him the news that was on every tongue of a British army trapped on the sands of Dunkirk, a hundred miles across the sea. A British army huddled helplessly awaiting certain destruction. I could see the light of Philip's lantern down by his little wharf and as I approached I saw that he was loading supplies into his sailboat water and food, bottles of brandy and a spare sail he was pale but his dark eyes were glowing with excitement 
I knew at once that he had heard the call for help and that here at last was something he could do. Hello, Frith. Philip, are you going away? Frith, I am glad you came. Yes, I must go away. I must go away now. It's only a little trip. I'll come back. Where must you go? Dunkirk. Dunkirk? In such a small boat, Philip? Yes, I know. But our government has called any kind of craft that floats to head across the sea and haul our men off the beaches. But, Philip, you can't carry more than six men. And for a hundred miles each way, it's impossible. They don't need to be taken far. Only to the transports and destroyers that can't reach the shallows. I can make many trips of that distance with six or even seven men at a time. Philip, I know how much you want to go, but I'm so afraid. In that little boat, you'll never come back, Philip. You'll never come back. Please don't go. Frith, listen to me. Men are huddled on the beaches like hunted birds. Over them fly the steel peregrines, hawks and falcons made of steel, Frith. And each one brimful of destruction. Our men have no shelter from these iron birds of prey. They are lost and storm-driven and harried. Like the lost princess you found and brought out of the marshes many years ago. They need help, my dear. Just as our wild creatures have needed help. Don't you see, Frith? It's as you said. Providence has shown me the way to serve. I stared at Philip. I couldn't believe the change in him. For the first time, he was no longer ugly or misshapen, but very beautiful. I will come with you, Philip. No, Frith. Your place in the boat would cause a soldier to be left behind and another and another. No, I must go alone. Will you look after the birds until I return? Godspeed you. I will take care of the birds. Godspeed, Philip. Goodbye, Frith. God bless you. Goodbye. I stood on the seawall and watched the sail gliding down the swollen estuary. Suddenly, from the darkness behind me, there came a rush of wings, and something swept past me in the air. In the night light, I saw the thrust forward head of the snow goose flashing down the winding creek where Philip's sail was slanting in the gaining breeze to fly above him in slow, wide circles. Watch over him. Watch over him. I tell you, it was a goose. Jockey, you seen it, same as me. Go on, I don't believe it. God's truth. Oh, I'd never be sitting here drinking this glass of beer if it wasn't for that bird a- and him that was with it. Him? Who are you talking about? Tell him what happened, Alf. Well, it come flying down out of the muck and stink and smoke of Dunkirk that was overhead. It was white, with black on its wings, and it circles us like a blooming dive bomber. And while we're looking up at it, round the bend comes as pretty a little sailboat as you ever saw. The bloke sailing her looks like he's out on a pleasure spin on a Sunday afternoon. There he sits in the stern sheets, holding the rope in his teeth. His teeth? Yes, with his good hand on the tiller and the crooked one waving to us to come. We're done for. It's the angel of death come for us. Yeah, and it's a ruddy goose come over from home with a message from Churchill. And now we enjoying the blooming bathing. I can take seven at a time. Come along, you men. Listen to him there. A blooming angel of mercy. Don't talk wrong. Come on, get in your feet and let's go. All right, lads. Now, just one at a time. Here, over the side. That's better. We thought it was the angel of death herself when we saw that goose. What's she doing here? Oh, that's the princess. She lives with me. She sticks to you like she'd known you for a lifetime. She very nearly has. She was lost once. She knows how it feels.
Well, he brought us out all right. And then we watched him make trips all afternoon and all night too. <laughs> he was still going when we left and he, he waved us goodbye, the bird with him. <laughs> A darn good man he was. Another half pint, please, miss. Half an hour, Tommy. I'll get it. That's a good yarn, mate. I can tell you the end of it. Yes? What happened? I'll tell you what happened. I was in that show, too. Our tugboat was on its third trip back, loaded down with soldiers, when our skipper sees a derelict boat off the starboard bow. We goes off course to have a look, and we finds this here goose sitting on the gunwale, guarding a man's dead body in the bottom of the boat. Struth. Hunchback he was. Just then there's a shout from the bridge and not 30 feet off the port beam is floating the biggest, juiciest mine you've ever looked at. No. If we'd kept on our course, we'd have piled right into it. Well, we blew up the mine with rifle fire and when we looked back, the derelict was gone. The explosion knocked her off and the chap with her. But that bird, well, it got up, circled three times like a plane saluting and took off. Queer it was. Give us all a turn. Lucky thing for us, we went over to have a look, eh? Yes, lads. It was lucky you saw her. But that wasn't just a goose. That was the snow goose flying straight to the lighthouse, to Frith, standing on the seawall, waiting. 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 Yes, waiting. But I knew that he was never coming back. I had stayed and roamed alone on the great marsh. I had found the picture that Philip had painted of me when I was still a child with an injured bird in my arms. Through the canvas I could see his love shining like a pure white light. And so that sunset, when I heard the high-pitched, well-remembered note in the heavens, it brought no instant of false hope to me. As my eyes lifted to the sky from whose flaming arches plummeted the lost princess, the sight broke the dam within me and released the surging, overwhelming truth of my love. Wild spirit called to wild spirit, and I seemed to be flying with that great bird, soaring with it in the evening sky and hearkening to Philip's message. Frith, Frith, my love, my love. I love you, Philip. I love you. Godspeed. Goodbye, Philip. Godspeed. Remember, Frith, as the snow goose needed help... So all the world needs help. It was you who gave me faith until Providence showed me the way to serve. Keep faith, my darling. Keep faith forever. Goodbye, my Frith. Goodbye. This is Kidnappers Kids. This is your show. This is, yes, you're listening to it and I hope you enjoy it. But don't forget, 
you can always send in requests or ideas for stories, songs and poems and and even a few jokes if you've got a thing to help us all laugh. <laughs> yeah. And how you do that is you give us a call and leave us a message on 87887810. Somebody might even answer the phone. It'd be great to hear from you. And next up we have the Great Fish Maui. Kia to that. Magic lay under the polished surface of Maui's fish hook. It was inlaid with mother of pearl and ornamented with tufts of dog's hair. It had been made from the jawbone of his grandmother. Now to see what fish it would catch. Little Maui crept from his foray and climbed into his big brother's canoe and hid under the floorboards. Soon his brothers came down the beach piled their fishing nets into the canoe and launched it into the breakers. Maui, hidden underneath their feet, heard them laughing together and one of them say, We've got rid of Maui, the tiny one. He will still be asleep. And a deep voice replied, Maui is not sleeping. The brothers looked round in amazement. It sounded as though the voice had come from beneath the canoe but they could see no one. So they lifted their paddles again and the canoe sped forward. Suddenly they stopped, for this time there was no mistake. The voice was beneath their feet. Yes, it was Maui who was laughing at them now. They pulled up the boards and there he was grinning at them like a goblin. They cried, Maui, we will not take you with us. You will spoil our fishing. Maui's grin widened and he said, Oh yes, you will take me. Angrily they answered, No, we will put back now. Maui stretched out his arm and pointed back toward the land whence they'd come. And he repeated, You will take me. The brothers, startled, looked behind them. But now only the blue ocean of Kiwa was to be seen. For by his magic art, Maui had spread out the sea and the land was lost behind the lift of the waves. Now, he said, let out your lines and we shall see what the fishing ground will yield. The brothers baited their hooks in sullen silence and let them down into the water. Soon the lines jerked in their hands and before long the bottom boards were covered with fish. Said the eldest brother, that will do. This has been good fishing. Now it is done. But Maui replied softly, You've done your work, my brothers. Mine has not yet begun. And they all cried at once, No, no. We have enough for you as well as for ourselves, Maui. But now Maui began lowering his hook, the magic hook, over the side of the canoe, saying, Ah, my brothers, you've not seen the fishing of Maui. Fathom after fathom of line passed between his fingers, and presently Maui felt that the hook had touched something. He tugged gently at the cord, and far below 
the hook caught fast. It had become entangled in the doorway of the house of Tonganui, the son of the sea god. Maui took the strain on his line. He set his feet against the side of the canoe, and putting forth his strength, he hauled on the line. Far below, Tonganui's house groaned. It lifted a little, settled back, and then, as the quivering cord strained upwards, the house left the bottom of the sea, and with it came a great piece of land. Maui chanted the song that makes heavy weights light. His voice rose higher, and the muscles stood out on his arm like the roots of a tree. The cord sang with a high, head-piercing note. There was a deep-throated cry from the brothers as the teko teko, the carved human figure on the roof of Tonganui's house, rose slowly above the sea, followed by the sides of the doorway with the magic hook caught in it. And then came the land underneath, like a shining fish whose tail stretched far out of sight. It lifted the canoe high out of the water as it thrust the ocean from its sides. Smooth and bright and shining was the world that Maui had pulled from beneath the sea. To his brothers, Maui said, Remain here. Make no sound. The sea god is angry and I must make peace with him. Then we will divide the land between us. But Maui's greedy brothers ran across the back of the fish, slashing it with their weapons and claiming pieces for themselves. The fish felt their running feet and the strokes of their weapons, for it was but sleeping on the ocean. So it tossed on the water, and its smooth surface was ruffled. That is why the great fish of Maui has been broken into mountains and valleys, into rough and rocky coastline. If they had left it alone, it would be smooth to this very day. It happened long ago, this fishing of Maui. Te Ika a Maui, they call it. The great fish of Maui, this northern island of New Zealand. Look at the map and you will see how Wellington Harbour and Lake Wairarapa are its eyes. Taupo is its heart and the long Northland Peninsula is its tail. Why, even the hook is there. It stretches out in the curved coastline of Hawke's Bay to the point known to the Maori as Te Matau a Maui, the fish hook of Maui. Racing along we go. Next up, Hearts on Fire. When he hears that fire alarm, Sam is always cool and calm. If you're stuck, give him a shout. He'll be there to help you out. Hearts on fire. Norman? Norman! There you are, Norman. What are you up to now? Nothing, ma'am. Nothing? With my broom? And that's one of my good blankets. Ma'am, I need that. I'm going camping. How am I going to make a tent without a broom and blanket? Camping? Oh, Norman, camping is dirty, dangerous, and... Camping is great fun. Oh, 
Oh, hello, Trevor. I didn't see you there. I love camping. The great outdoors, fresh air, beautiful nature. I used to be a boy scout, you know. Oh, really? I bet you look very smart in your uniform. <laughs> right, men and woman. It's springtime again, and we all know what that means, don't we? Flowers? No, Cridlington. It means campers, hikers, and picnickers. And with them comes a greater risk of fires. Forest fires, grass fires. Each type of fire requires special techniques and special tools. <laughs> like floppy shovels. <laughs> That's a beater, Elvis, for smothering grass fires. Tell me, Norman, have you ever slept out in a real tent or cooked supper on a real campfire? Yeah, of course I have, loads of times. No, you haven't. You wanted to sleep out in the garden once, but you came in again when it got dark. Oh, Mum, I was only three. <laughs> Norman, I was just wondering if you'd like me to take you camping sometime. Yes, you bet I would. That would be brilliant. OK, well, if you're that keen, how about this weekend? Oh, my, Trevor, that sounds wonderful. Sitting out under the stars can be so aromatic. I can't wait. But I... Oh, yes, I love the great outdoors. No, you don't, Mum. I wonder if you realise what you're letting yourself in for, Trevor. I'll have you know, I'm a very experienced camper, Sam. I know how to light a campfire safely. I used to be a Boy Scout. <laughs> I'm sorry, Trevor. I didn't mean to question your camping skills. I meant, uh, Norman Price. Oh, I see what you mean. Norman, come and help me with my suitcases. Oh, I wish she didn't have to come too. <laughs> Have fun, everybody! Perhaps I should give Mountain Rescue a call, just to be on the safe side. Norman, Dillis and Trevor are driving towards Pontypandy Mountain. Camping can be very dangerous, ma'am. Uh, you'll need to keep a lookout for wild cats for a start. Wild cats? Uh, of course, you don't have to stay if you don't want to, ma'am. Don't listen to Norman. There aren't any wild cats on Ponty Pandy Mountain. There could be. What about escaped zoo animals that have gone back to the wild? Don't be silly. I, I saw a story on telly about a ferocious lion that was roaming the hills for years. At night, you could hear it roar. Maybe we should camp near the bus. OK, uh, you can do that if you like. Or, or you could ask Trevor to take you home again. In the meantime, I'm going to find a good camping spot. Uh, don't worry about me. I know how to handle a wild lion. Norman! Dillis calls after him, but Norman doesn't stop. <sighs> At the campsite, Norman is hiding behind a rock and sees Dillis coming towards him. It's only Norman. Oh, thanks a lot, Trevor. Come on, ma'am. We better start collecting firewood. Oh, honestly, Dillis, there really is nothing to be frightened of. The biggest danger in the woods is people, the most likely cause of forest fires. F forest fires? Yes, that's why I'm building the campfire so carefully. No! Oh! 
Once, some campers didn't realize that the woods were on fire until the flames reached their tents. At the mountain rescue station, Tom is talking to Sam on the telephone. Uh, no, Sam, no signs of trouble at the moment. Well, I just wanted to let you know that Trevor is camping up there tonight with Norman Price. <laughs> OK, Sam, uh, point taken. I'll keep an eye out. Back at the campsite, Trevor has lit the fire. Oh, there we go. I think that's just about hot enough to cook on now. All we need is the pot and something to put in it. Oh, fire! Forest fire! The trees are on fire! Oh, no! Uh, ow! Uh, come on! Uh, everyone back to the mess! No! Dennis! This way! Ponty Paddy Mountain? Fire on Ponty Paddy Mountain, Sam. Better alert, Tom. Hello, Tom. We're on our way. We just got word of the fire on Ponty Paddy Mountain. Are you sure, Sam? Ah, oh, okay. Uh, standing by. As Sam, Elvis, and Penny head out in Jupiter. At the mountain rescue station, Tom looks through his binoculars at Ponty Pandy Mountain. I can't see any smoke. Where was the fire you saw, Dennis? There! Over there! I saw the bright orange flames glowing through the trees. Oh. Oh. Oh, dear. <laughs> Mom, that's the sunset. Norman Price, if you hadn't been telling your mother so many scary stories, this never would have happened. If you're going to carry on like this, we might as well go home right now. Sorry, Trevor. Sorry, Mum. I, I promise not to tell any more stories. Well, we better call back and tell the fire brigade it was a false alarm. What? A false alarm? There, stand down, men and women. False alarm, there's no fire. Repeat, stand down, men. It's a false alarm, Elvis. We'd better go back. At the mountain rescue station, Tom notices smoke rising from the forest. <gasps> there's the fire. I'd better find Sam and let him know. Hello? Hello, Sam. I've located the fire. You'd better get up here. Uh, we're on our way. You tell station officer Steele what's happened. At the campsite, Norman has discovered the real fire. <gasps> oh, no! Mum! Trevor! There is a fire! A forest fire! Call Fireman Sam back! Now! Norman Price, what did I tell you about making up all these scary stories? No! I, I'm not making it up! It's true! Come and look! Oh, dear. Oh, oh, dear. We should never have left the campfire unattended. Tom Thomas calling, Sam. I'm on my way. Where are you? We're just arriving, Tom. Penny, Elvis, bring the hoses. The fire is too far from the road for the hoses to reach Tom. We'll have to use flex packs and beaters. No worries, Sam. I'll build up the water tanks. I can help you from the air. Tom flies over the burning campsite and drops water from the helicopter. 
Penny and Sam spray the fire with their flex packs, while Elvis beats down the flames with the beater. I love these floppy shovels. <laughs> when the fire is put out, everyone returns to the fire station. Oh, I'm sorry, Sam. I should have known better than to leave the campfire unattended. I was a Boy Scout, you know. I know, Trevor, but even Boy Scouts sometimes have accidents. Oh, dear. Are you sure he's safe camping out there on his own, Sam? <laughs> yes, Dillis. Quite sure. Norman is camping in Sam's garden in a tent made of a blanket and a broom. Maybe it's time for some exercise. I hope everyone's all safe out there. Look after one another. It's really important during this lovely, horrible weather. But nevertheless, we've got to be, be smiling as we can, if you can. But look after each other. Row, row, row your boat. together this list on a different day on a sunny day so it's um yes it's an interesting list and i hope this doesn't make anybody too sad it's raining it's pouring and i know yes we need lots of buckets
if you've got some ideas for some songs and stories that you'd like to hear to help me out, give us a call, leave us a message, 8788710. It'll be great to hear from you. Little Boy Fishing. Little boy fishing off a wooden pier Come fish, bite fish, swim along here Little boy wonder why the fish don't float Little boy wanna buy a fishing boat Little boy fishing off a wooden pier Come fish, bite fish, swim along here Little boy gotta buy a boat some way Then he go fishing all the live long day Dogfish, catfish, any this or that fish Please swim by my line Can't catch shellfish, but I want a selfish Gotta make some money for that boat of mine Little boy dreaming with a secret smile Someday sail away cannibal isle Little boy wonder when his boat will come Little boy slumber now the day is done Dreamin' is nothing if it ain't worthwhile Keep on dreamin', little man-child Many a general would eat his hat Give away talking and to do just that Little boy richer than a millionaire All he got is trouble and care Soon enough little boy will grow big man Then he go fishing for the frying pan Dogfish, catfish, any this or that fish Please swim by my line Catch shellfish, but I want a selfish Gotta make some money for that boat of mine Little boy fishing off a wooden pier Come fish, bite fish, swim along here Little boy sleepy and he sail away In his dream boat down to blame And on we go with, hmm, yes, the owl and the pussycat. The owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money wrapped up in a five pound note. The owl looked up to the stars above and sang. To a small guitar Oh, lovely pussy, oh pussy, my love What a beautiful pussy you are You are, you are What a beautiful pussy you are Pussy said to the owl, you elegant fowl how charmingly sweet you sing Oh, let us be married too long We have tarried 
But what shall we do for a ring? They sailed away for a year and a day To the land where the bong tree grows And there in a wood A piggy wig stood with a ring at the end of his nose His nose, his nose With a ring at the end of his nose Dear pig, are you willing to sell for one shilling your ring? Said the piggy, I will. So they took it away and were married next day. By the turkey that lived on the hill, they dined on mince and slices of quince, which they ate with a runcible spoon. And hand in hand, on the edge of the sand, they danced by the light of the moon. The moon, the moon. They danced by the light of the moon. This is just a single page or two pages from Dr. Zeus's One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. And it goes like this. Hello there, Ned. How do you do? Tell me, tell me, what is new? How are things in your little bed? What is new? Please tell me, Ned. I do not like this bed at all. A lot of things have come to call. A cow, a dog, a cat, a mouse. Oh, what a bed. Oh, what a house. And that's that for now. And last up, yes, indeed, last up we have... The Yellow Rose of Texas. You have a great day. Be kind to one another. This is Dexter, and you'll hear from me another day. Ta-ra for now. There's a yellow rose in Texas that I am going to see. Nobody else could miss her, not half as much as me. She cried so when I left her, it like it broke my heart. And if I ever find her, we never more will part. She's the sweetest little rosebud that Texas ever knew. Her eyes are bright as diamonds, they sparkle like the dew. You may talk about your Clementine and sing of Rosalie, but the yellow rose in Texas is the only girl for me Where the Rio Grande is flowing and starry skies are bright She walks along the river in the quiet summer night I know that she remembers when we parted long ago I promise to return and not to leave her so She's the sweetest little robot that Texas ever knew Her eyes are bright as diamonds, they sparkle like the dew You may talk about your Clementine and sing of Rosalie But the yellow rose of Texas is the only girl for me And 
now I'm gonna find her For my heart is full of woe We'll do the things together We did so long ago We'll play the banjo gaily She loved me like before And the yellow rose of Texas Shall be mine forevermore She's the sweetest little rosebud The Texas Avenue Her eyes are bright as diamonds They sparkle like the dew You may talk about your Clementine And sing a Rosalie But the yellow rose of Texas Is the only This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Hawke's Bay, a community access media station. Thank you to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.